Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tony Riches was born in Pembrokeshire in West Wales and spent part of his childhood in Kenya. He, grabbed, he gained a BA in psychology and an MBA from Cardiff University and worked as a management consultant, followed by senior roles in the Welsh NHS and local government. After writing several successful nonfiction books, Tony decided to turn to novel writing and wrote The Queen's Sacrifice set in 10th century Wales, followed by The Shell of Thriller set in present day Kenya. And his real interest is in the history of the 15th century, and now his focus is on writing historical fiction about the lives of the key figures of the period. His novels Warwick, The Man Behind the Wars of the Roses, and The Secret Diary of Eleanor Cobham have both become Amazon bestsellers, and he is now completing the final book. Well, it is completed now. He's working on the sequel of the Tudor trilogy about Henry Tudor becoming King of England, and now he's returned to Pembrokeshire. And which is an area full of inspiration for his writing where he lives with his wife and in his spare time he enjoys sailing and sea kayaking. So you're in a wonderful area for it, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for, for being here and for talking with me and, and just taking your time and being so generous. Um, so what can you tell me to start with just kicking it off about the research that went into writing the Tudor trilogy and now the sequel as well? Yeah, well you've, you've already said that I was originally from Pembroke. And so that's what gave me the interest in the life of Henry Tudor. And the more I researched it, I realized then that to do justice to his life in one book would be a bit of a challenge. So I started researching his grandfather then, Owen Tudor, and I found there were no books about him at the time. So I went back to first principles into the original documentation that was around and um, looking at the Welsh journals uh, which are very hard to understand but uh, if you put the work in the rewards are there. Okay so how long did it take you to pull that all together? Four years. Really? And it was um, an ongoing process because uh, for example we had to visit a lot of the locations which were as far away as the uh, remote parts of Brittany mm. and um, right up a uh, four or five hour journey up to the island of Anglesey, which is off of North Wales. I live in southwest Wales, so it is quite a long way to go to research these things. Sure. Wow. And you've also written the nonfiction books as well. So what's the difference for you between the two types of writing? The the nonfiction uh, was a really good grounding in getting your facts really pinned down, getting all the references right, 
uh, cross-checking one book against another, one source against another. And so it was a really good um, introduction into the kind of skills that you need as a historical fiction author, because quite often the books contradict each other. And you start to realize that uh, a non-fiction book is still one historian's point of view. Sure. And so you need half a dozen really, and then you draw from that what is probably the closest you're going to get to the truth. Mm, interesting. So you also then were just involved in this uh, project to get the statue of Henry VII. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Interesting. Um, if you ever go to Pembroke Castle, which I do recommend, you'll find that there's a room there in a tower with a rather strange tableau representing the birth of Henry Tudor. And uh, they've got these figures sort of standing around a crib. And I started then looking at um, what signs there were for people to understand how important Pembroke Castle was in the story of the Tudors. Mm -hmm. And we discovered that there was a group of local people in Pembroke that were trying to raise funds for a statue to go outside the castle. And it seemed hugely ambitious at the time, but good fun. And uh, we went to endless meetings and we did all sorts of fundraising things. And then we managed to get commercial sponsors and we did it. We raised the money. There is now a magnificent statue of Henry VII outside Pembroke Castle. And whenever we visit it, uh, there are always people taking photographs of it because uh, the castle forms the backdrop to it. And so we're very proud of that as an achievement. But it does mean that nobody's got any excuse for not knowing about Henry VII anymore. Wow, that must have been quite an achievement. Um, so getting to your books now and information about Owen and Jasper and then Henry, um, in your first book, Owen has a very full life before he marries Catherine. Can you tell me what we know of his life before? And like in your books we see, or in the book we see him getting into these kerfuffle scuffles with crooked cooks who are poaching food and um, kitchen fairs. He's having these other love affairs and all this kind of thing. How did you construct all those different characters and, and what do we know of him from that? Well, I'll stick to the, the facts and then I'll explain how I link them together. Because the facts are that the Tudors came originally from the island of Anglesey, which I mentioned earlier. And it's quite a remote part of the country, really. It's separated from the mainland by the very fast-flowing and dangerous Menai Strait. Mm. And then, even once you get across that, uh, North Wales in Tudor times was quite a wilderness. And there was a lot of fighting, civil wars going on. And unfortunately for Owen, uh, his father fled to London, taking his son with him. So Owen, whether he wanted to or not, found himself as a child in London with a sort of itinerant Welsh father. And um, it must have been quite a struggle, but he would have grown up on the streets. So I wanted to show that he had quite a sort of streetwise approach to himself. He wasn't um, particularly well educated, but he could read and write. Mm -hmm. And that's quite unusual, really, for somebody like him. And he somehow 
managed to find himself as a as a boy in France with Henry V. And so there's um, debate about the extent to which he was involved, but uh, he is actually a squire to the chap who was the constable of Windsor Castle. And so it's fairly easy to see how uh, he managed to get a job, a cushy number probably, in Windsor Castle. And uh, my wife and I visited Windsor Castle, so we've got first-hand knowledge of exactly what the layout is like. And it's just amazing that if Owen was there today, he would recognize most of it, even after the big fire that was there. But how he got from being a, a servant to being the husband of the, the Dowager Queen of England, um, everybody's got a view on that. And do you know what I think the answer is? It's quite a simple thing. He was the keeper of the wardrobe, which is a strange term. It actually means looking after all of her possessions, her dresses, but also her jewellery. And he'd been picked because he was quite able to look after himself. And I think he was quite good with people. So I tried to reflect all of those bits of known fact. Um, exactly how he ended up marrying her is is open to debate but he did mm -hmm. and um so i had to get from being her servant to being her husband which was a, a great challenge for a historical fiction author and if i was writing it as a non-fiction book i'd have to end the chapter turn the page mm -hmm. and then they're married yeah. which wouldn't be quite so much fun i don't think sure so you worked in these this, he had a really long-term affair, really, that lasted for years in your book. Um, is there any evidence of that woman? Absolutely. He wasn't a monk. Right. And so he wouldn't have gone um, just uh, living like a monk just because he was the queen's servant. He would have been quite a catch for any of the other female servants that were there. And um, they would have seen an opportunity if they wanted to to raise their status and to have a bit more security. But I, I like to put it that it was a bit of an on-off relationship because actually all the time he had a bit of a thing for the Queen, however implausible that might seem. That's the truth. Mm, interesting. Um, there, you portray Henry VI in the books as a young boy in the first book with Owen. And I remember there was this scene where he was first- Henry VII. Okay. Or, sorry. Well, Henry VI, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, as a boy, there was the jousting scene where he was, um, he was going to be uh, have his new tutor come, his the who was going to be showing him how to do the how to start jousting, and there was this belief at first everybody was really nervous about it that that he was going to fall and hurt himself, and it wasn't you know going to be it was going to be a disaster. But he actually did pretty well in in the end, and it was just an interesting kind of. There's so many stereotypes of him older, and yet you portray. I guess I'm just curious about like how did you put that part of his character together as a younger boy? It was really fascinating because I had to put myself in his shoes. And first of all, he was a very skilled horseman, as they all were 
from a very young age. So the bit about riding a horse was really quite like we would consider driving a car, a, a basic life skill. Riding a horse with a lance in your hand is quite a different thing. And so once again, it was expected of nobles to be really at least competent um, to fight on horseback. And the way that they practiced that was um, charging at each other with lances and various other weapons. And Henry would have been no exception. He would have been forced, whether he wanted to or not, to um, at least tilt at the ring, which is, uh, it sounds quite painless that, doesn't it? But I don't know if you've seen a, a quintain, there's a heavy weight on the other side. Yeah. And if you actually strike a shield, it swings around violently and hits you on the back of the head. And uh, they still do that to this day at jousting tournaments. And it's, it's quite fun, but also quite dangerous if you fall off. Mm. And um, I, I didn't see the need for him to have been a, a scholar or just reading books all day. Um, although I did feel that Prince Arthur was a bit more like that. Um, Henry VII's eldest son, who sadly died at the age of 16, um, there's good evidence that he really didn't enjoy uh, fighting on horseback or anything like that, and much preferred his books. Yeah. Whereas, of course, Henry VIII, they couldn't stop him. They had to ban him, in fact, from doing it because he was taking too much fun out of it. <laughs> That's funny. And then you show Catherine of Valois. I thought it was really interesting. You, you create her character having kind of the same mental health issues that her father had and later then that her son would have. And I just wonder if there was any evidence for that and kind of how you put that in there. This, this is a really interesting question because, um, as you probably know, um, Catherine's father, King Charles of France, um, was also called the Mad King because he killed several of his servants not recognizing them. He thought he was made of glass and um, he, was, he would be diagnosed in various ways, ranging from psychotic to psychopathic. He was really a um, very troubled person. And then of course, Henry VI, uh, it's extremely well documented uh, that he would, occasionally forget who he was or where he was and fell into what we now would call a catatonic trance which none of the efforts of any of his doctors could rouse him from including putting hot coals to the soles of his feet so there's no question that he was faking it and right. um, in the middle the only person that connects those two is Catherine of Valois so I didn't want to overdo it but I felt that under extreme stress, such as when she'd um, either almost died losing a child or thought she'd lost her child or anything like that, um, these problems could be there beneath the surface and begin to manifest themselves in various ways. And um, it was really interesting as, as a novelist to gently explore uh, the suspicions of those around her that she might be showing those symptoms and uh, can you imagine yourself if if um, you know you had relatives uh, who had severe mental health problems 
and then people are looking at you with a raised eyebrow whenever you um, behave in any way which is unexpected to them. So I thought that was quite interesting and I did actually leave it as an open question for the reader to make their own mind up and if they do go back to the the evidence that I've found it is very thin but um, it's well framed by the experiences of her relatives. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then you talked about the stress of losing a child or thinking she lost a child. So was there another son that was in Westminster Abbey? This is another interesting one. I, I, I believe particularly in um, Owen, which is the oldest in terms of time and the, the thinnest in terms of tangible evidence, the little fragments that we've got have to be explored really thoroughly. And there was a, a son, uh, it was a typical thing that a family would give a son to the church. You have to set aside modern values and try and picture a time when monasteries ruled the land. And it was a great life to be a monk because you didn't have any of, it's like being on some kind of state benefits the whole time, you know? You didn't have any responsibilities uh, that a normal person would have in terms of where to get money from or food or anything. And uh, they were like um, medical people, uh, there was spiritual guidance for people. They did a lot of good for the community. So to give a son, if you had, if you had an heir and a spare, and then you had another son, uh, to give that person to the church, either as a monk or as a cleric, so they could, um, for example, eventually become a bishop or something like that, but they would still be given to the church. And um, the particular evidence that I found was in Westminster um, Abbey, which is a place which Owen had extremely close connections with. Firstly, he was allowed to take sanctuary there for quite a long time. And secondly, he actually did become a novice monk there for a while. And um, didn't, it wasn't to his liking, let's put it like that. He did give it a, quite a good go for about a year, as far as I could tell. And there is a record of a monk they rename them by the way so whatever name they've got when they become a monk they give them a new name and if anybody wants to look it up the name of this person was Edward Bridgewater that was the name given by the abbot however there's a record of a monk Owen Tudor because it's quite likely he would have been called Owen after his father and they didn't really use surnames the same way as we do but in terms of record keeping um, Owen Tudor the monk was left money in various wills um, for him to say prayers for people. Yeah? So that's as far as the evidence goes. But I thought it was fascinating that uh, most people obviously know about Edmund Tudor and of course Jasper Tudor. Um, they don't necessarily know that there might have been another Owen Tudor who became a monk. And they also don't necessarily know that there was another son um, called David Owen. Now that's extremely well documented that when Owen Tudor was about my age he actually had a son with his maidservant and um, that was really interesting and he called him David Owen, they called him David Owen and he became a knight and uh, a very well respected historical figure 
and he was there waiting for Henry VII at Mill Bay when he landed with a small army of men that he'd raised mm. and then carried on to the Battle of Bosworth. So he's, he's quite a key figure and well documented. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, so after Catherine died and they, whatever relationship they had, now, do, do you think, was, was there a secret wedding? Do, what kind of evidence is there about a secret wedding? Or? Um, it's not documented. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's no actual um, record of, it was a secret wedding. Right, sure, so yeah. it's a secret. Um, but uh, the fact that it took place, the evidence for it, is that Wayne uh, and Jasper and Edmund had lots of enemies, people that would have loved to have proved the boys were legitimate, mm-hmm. and that would have immediately threatened their whole their titles, their lands, everything would have been undermined. And if they really believed for a moment that they could get away with that, um, this is in a time, for example, when um, King Edward IV was declared illegitimate, the third declared everybody inside illegitimate, but I can't find any evidence of, for example, Jasper Tudor or Edmund Tudor being described as illegitimate. Mm. which suggests that at the time, everybody accepted that they were the product of a legitimate marriage. I see, okay. And so then Catherine dies, and how does Owen keep it together? You... He doesn't. <laughs> no, he, he actually um, didn't do a very good job of keeping it together, I don't think. I already mentioned that he did consider joining the monastery, um, he, he got arrested, of course, and put in prison. And uh, in those days, um, they didn't have to even charge you. Uh, they could put you there pending um, charges, and you might well die of disease or starvation or whatever um, in a sort of rat-infested prison. And um, so that couldn't have been much fun. Uh, one interesting thing I did find was that it wasn't just him, it was him and his priest and a servant. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was interesting. I could do something with that. Mm-hmm. And I decided that it was unlikely that they'd just be sat together in a nice little cell, the three of them, mm-hmm. having a great time with it. It'd be quite the opposite. And so that's what I did. Yeah, yeah that was that was one of the, the most vivid scenes for me too, as they were fighting the disease and, and everything like, like that. So, um, and then you mentioned David Owen, his son, what kind of life did he have once he managed to get back to Wales? I think it was like a sort of semi-retirement, you know, he'd, he'd got plenty of money. He'd been made, uh, given various titles and he would be made warden of part of North Wales. And so he would have had an income which was like a pension these days. And so I decided that a logical place for him to return to would have been the Isle of Anglesey, where the Tudors originated from. And um, he might have stayed there for a while, but eventually it's documented that he returned to Pembroke, mm. and uh, where Jasper was um, in charge of Pembroke Castle. And uh, of course that was Henry VII's birthplace as well. So it is a very nice part of the world. And in those days, 
um, until uh, the Yorkists made it impossible to stay there, it would have been a, an obvious choice of somewhere to, to live and mm -hmm. live out your days. Yeah, and then he got caught up in, in going out. It, at the end of the book, and I don't want to give too much away, but um, everybody, it's, it's kind of like, okay, people die. <laughs> you kind of can yeah. part out. Um, and so, uh, you know, he, it, it showed him being part of, you know, getting involved in the Wars of the Roses, choosing sides. It was such a fluid time where sides weren't officially there yet. And, and Jasper had a role on trying to negotiate with both sides. And, um, and it's so you see him riding off. What, what do you think that would have been like for him at that point at his age? And it must have been great to march across Wales to finally sort out the Yorkists mm -hmm. with a big Welsh army. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually marched through the town of Glandavry, where my, my daughter lives. Mm -hmm. And that's hardly changed since. So you can vividly imagine what it must have been like with people cheering them on and um, jolly glad that somebody was doing something about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And then it was a horrible trap, it was a massacre. They were seriously outclassed at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. And um, Owen was um, not really a fighter. So the fact that he got captured um, is very believable and uh, is backed up by the evidence. Sure. And so then the second book, Jasper picks off where that one it leaves off and he I thought it was interesting that the first scene of of Jasper's life in that book is him getting away and there were several scenes throughout the book where he was able to get away um and and sometimes he felt guilty about leaving his men there to fight while he was getting away I just it seemed like a theme for him was this ability to to get away and I just wonder kind of if you can expand on that a little bit what they used to do if, if, they caught, if you were the loser in a battle of the Wars of the Roses, um, you had three choices. And very briefly, they were to turn your coat and, um, in, you know, in basically forget everything you'd fought and lived for and join the enemy. And then you'd be hated by both sides, actually, for the rest of your life. Um, the second was to be captured and either executed or imprisoned in the Tower of London or some dungeon somewhere until you died. Mm -hmm. And the third one was to escape to fight another day. Mm -hmm. And I think I would go for the third one. And can you imagine how awful it must have been for Jasper? He would have had to make a snap decision and not just leave his friends, but leave his own father, mm -hmm. who he had allowed to follow them and um, run for his life, uh, perhaps not even with his horse or anything, just to run, you know? Mm. And um, that would haunt him, I think. That would, that would have haunted him for the rest of his life. Mm. And uh, I tried to reflect that, that sense of um, personal failure, really, um, which is inevitable if you're in that situation. Sure. And because it didn't just happen once, it's documented <laughs> that it's happened several times. So whether or not it should be a theme, I think uh, it becomes something of a recurring thing. But once you've done it and lived to fight another day, 
it probably is. You've always got an eye on the exit door, an escape route with a fast horse waiting, uh, just in case the worst happens. Mm, sure. And then I've heard him described before as like a 007 kind of figure, this kind of James Bond adventure kind of person, but getting out of scrapes all the time. What can you tell me about some of the highlights of his adventures that he had? I think that one of the most amazing things is that uh, Pembroke Castle was besieged by the Yorkists and they had it completely surrounded. They dug a great big ditch. They took over the whole town. And um, you would say that's a hopeless situation uh, because there's no getting away with that. You'd either get starved out and have to surrender and then you get killed, um, or you could try fighting your way out and get killed. So that's the two choices that you had. Um, by some miracle, and what it was, was not all the people besieging the castle were that sympathetic towards the Yorkists. Mm. Um, it was in fact the brother of the commander of the Yorkists uh, gave him a way out. Uh, but even then, uh, everywhere he looked, uh, people could be Yorkist agents, so he could be betrayed by anybody he met. Mm. And what he actually did was hidden in a cellar in Tembe, which is um, our nearest seaside town. So I go there regularly and um, escaped through a tunnel to the harbour, which we, we I have been down that tunnel. It does exist. You said it's and, a boot uh, or something now? There's a boots on top of it? Yeah, that's right. Boots the chemist. It's um, a, a chemist's shop. Mm -hmm. um, the manager of the chemist showed us down into the tunnels, which are there. Some people say it's a myth, you see, uh, but it's not a myth, there are tunnels. And then um, from there he sailed to Brittany, which is how we ended up in Brittany doing research in remote uh, woods looking for chateaus where they'd been in hiding. And um, you asked me what was the most remarkable thing that he did. Um, I think it's really remarkable that uh, instead of just living the easy life in Brittany, which he could have done, and married some Breton lady and had a, a, a very peaceful life, he actually invaded England, not once, but twice. The first time was a disaster, but they learned a lot from it. And then the second time, against the odds, they were victorious. And that is just, if I'd made it up, I'd fully expect people to say it was too far-fetched to be true, uh, but it's what happened. Yeah. There was a siege before Pembroke uh, in Bambara on the other end of the, of the island. Yeah. And that's a, I've been to Bambara, and that is not a castle that you can get out of easily. So can you tell me anything about, about well, that? Um, you know, I said that you could either fight your way out or and get captured or be starved out. Mm -hmm. um, they made a pretty feeble attempt at fighting their way out. They pretty much surrendered. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he was expecting to be in prison for life or executed, Jasper now. Yeah. And the, what happened was he was kind of accidentally uh, pardoned. Um, I don't think they really should have pardoned him. Somebody should have been in trouble for that, for pardoning him. But he was pardoned and uh, they basically, um, it's like, it's like um, saying to a, 
a criminal, um, I want you to report to your local police station when, when you've got the time to yeah. do it, you know? Yeah. Uh, they never would do it. And of course, um, he couldn't believe his luck. It, it took quite a long time for him to realise exactly what had happened. Mm -hmm. And um, then he was able to start all over again. Mm, interesting. And you show, there wasn't just the kind of fighting side of him, you also show this benevolent side of him. And I remember there was one scene where he was presiding over a court and there was a family that uh, had debts and he wound up anonymously while he, he helped them out. And can you tell me anything about that kind of benevolent side of him? And yeah. At one time, Jasper Tudor was the law in that part of Wales. So he was um, the judge and jury and uh, administered the law. And what that meant was that if somebody had a dispute um, that was of any significance, for example, typically over land ownership, and quite often there are disputes between landlords and tenants, then somebody like Jasper would have to make a judgment and make a ruling. And there was not really much appeal against that ruling. Whatever he said uh, stood. And he didn't necessarily have to be very um, uh, concerned about uh, the law or anything. That's just the way it worked. It's a feudal system. Yeah. And interestingly, if you look through the Welsh journals, um, as far as I can tell, he was a popular figure, um, not just with the landowners, but with the people as well. Mm. So the only way that the people could have um, seen him as a, a worthy justice administrator was if he did show fairness um, when, when called upon and not always just back the landowner against their tenants. So I had to, um, I looked at lots of actual records of what the sort of trials that went on and the, the cases and the hearings and the work is algum of several real life stories. And of course, he was in the same situation as a young boy, where his whole future depended on the whim of other people higher up than him. And so he, he would have sympathized, I think, uh, with the sort of um, underdog, if you like, and not always taken a superior position on it. Oh, yeah, I see. And then um, yeah, we can't leave out Henry, as well, since he's the most wonderful. No. <laughs> um, so what can you tell me about his early life uh, and well you, we can start there and then getting getting into exile. Well um, we have to remember that Henry's father died of the plague. We think it was the plague anyway he might have been poisoned or murdered but whichever the case he died before Henry was born. And Henry's mother who was only 13 or 14, depending on uh, when we're talking about, um, she promptly handed him over uh, to be brought up because she'd been married off to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So um, her new husband uh, would have been very keen to have his own son and heir and not to have Edmund Tudor's son to worry about. Mm -hmm. And of course, what happened is he was brought up uh, by one of Jasper's enemies, the Herberts, and, and came to feel like he was one of their family and actually was 
destined to marry one of the Herbert heiresses. So that would have been, um, as far as he was concerned, that would have been his future all mapped out. Mm. And then, of course, when Jasper ends up looking after him, he had a very different uh, plans, really. And um, so the, the second book of the trilogy, I, I, the way I describe it is the first book is where Henry is born. The second book is really where he comes of age. And the third book is when he becomes king. And I, I believe that given the choice, unlike Jasper, who would have said, let's invade a third time if the second time was not a great success. Let's run away from that battle mm -hmm. and um, lick our wounds and come back even stronger. Henry would have said, let's stay in Brittany. <laughs> it's not so bad in Brittany. And uh, there is evidence that he had a, a, a relationship, if not a, a wife in Brittany, and that he could have had a son as well in Brittany. So uh, he was establishing a whole life there as a minor Breton noble. Mm -hmm. And then to suddenly find uh, that he's having to um, fight at the Battle of Bosworth against Richard III, mm. I can imagine that he had to find um, every ounce of faith yeah. that he stood any chance at all. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Sometimes in historical fiction, uh, people portray Lady Margaret as being driven with this vision of her son being king and like it was this destined thing. And it seems like, uh, you know, whatever the, the truth of that, it seems like for Henry, he didn't really have that kind of vision for himself at all. I think you're right, and and if you look at his life, and look at his the way he ruled the country, um, really, uh, he in a way you could say he wanted a bit of a quiet life. Mm -hmm. He wanted all wars to end. Mm -hmm. He was a bit of a sort of these days we'd call him a hippie, I think, in that um, he was he was very much in favour of peaceful negotiation mm -hmm. and um, being quite careful with the country's finances. And uh, these days, um, that'd be quite good in a politician, wouldn't it? Uh, he wasn't a skilled politician. He knew how to surround himself with men who were. And so he, he did an unusual thing. He actually reappointed his former enemy's advisors as at the core of his own advisors. Mm -hmm. And that's a very clever thing to do, if you think about it, because... Um, all of that experience, which he didn't have any, he didn't have the first idea about how to run a country. Um, all of that knowledge and experience was available to him whenever he needed it. And very slowly over time, um, he developed his own advisors and he had people like Bishop Fox, who uh, was another peaceful person really, uh, who he could send to negotiate with the troublesome Scots. Uh, not always with the threat, if you don't agree, we'll invade, but quite the opposite. You know, let's see what we can come to in terms of uh, an understanding between us. Mm. And that worked because during his lifetime, most people don't seem to be aware of this, but it was one of the longest periods of peace, really, that, um, you know, in, in that part of history, because um, there were obviously the last wars of the roses. And um, those were very bitter. Um, the Cornish rebellion 
um, was nearly the end of him because they all marched up to sort out the king mm -hmm. and that would have been a, a complete disaster. But um, he did have a few lucky breaks really. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a little bit of a shame that until now, um, people at school children, uh, I've looked into this, even today, um, they start off their story of the Tudors with Henry VIII. Mm. So they talk about Henry VIII and his six wives, and they go into great detail and they recite the mantra, and they know almost nothing about Henry VIII's father and what he achieved. Mm. Mm. One thing that I thought was interesting in the book, uh, in, in the beginning with Henry and Elizabeth of York's relationship, you show it kind of being very peaceful from the get-go, her being, if not happy, at least quite content with her, her lot. Uh, and I just wonder if you, if kind of what evidence you, how you put that together. Yeah, there's a whole range of different things. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that um, they did, they were thrust together, they were forced together, they didn't have any choice in it, but that's the way it worked in those days. And so um, women in Elizabeth of York's position could choose between grudgingly going along with it mm -hmm. or trying to make the best of it that they could. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no other options really. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I decided that fairly quickly, she was a very intelligent woman and um, her mother would have given her lots of advice and she, all of the people around her would have encouraged her uh, to be the best queen that she could, mm -hmm. rather than to be some bitter and twisted um, uh, person who was really resisting uh, being married to the king the whole time. So um, I, I do believe that they began um, without knowing each other at all, and like any arranged marriage, there's good evidence a lot of arranged marriages eventually develop into something much stronger, which even if they were given the choice, they would choose to stay together. And particularly once they have children together, then the whole dynamic changes. Because whatever happens, whatever he says or does, he is the father of her children. And um, that is a big deal even today, isn't it? It's the, the, way, the way that the relationship um, starts to develop and become something quite special. Sure. And it's, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, he, he was the enemy of her father and, you know, the opposite sides. But that was also quite common for princesses. Uh, Henry VIII's sister had to marry France just, you know, right as they were fighting as well. So it, it wasn't that much of a, of a difference, I suppose. I just, yeah. it, it seemed interesting that it just got off on such a good start. <laughs> I just wondered. <laughs> They both, had a, they both had everything to gain mm -hmm. by getting it off to the best possible start, if I can use that phrase, yeah. and everything to lose by let, allowing it to be seen to not work. Mm, yeah. And Henry in particular needed the Yorks to back him. There were a lot of very unhappy Yorkists around. And what they could say was, look, um, the Queen is our York champion and she will protect our interests. So it was in their interest for her to remain queen mm -hmm. and make a success of it, which is what happened, of course. Sure. 
And then just um, finally, I want to ask you a little bit about the uh, rebellions that Henry VII had had to kind of put down. You mentioned the Cornish one and um, with the pretenders that he had to deal with. If you can just share a little bit about that. Yeah, but of course, it's, it is very well documented as we move forward each book, the amount of documentation quadruples. So I started off with almost nothing um, with Owen, and then it sort of, I got four times as much with Owen, but then I've got so much with Henry, um, almost everything he did in terms of ledgers and documents um, is somewhere to be tracked down. And people have made a life's work of studying his letters and his journals and all of that kind of thing and of course the the last battles and the pretenders um that was a big thing as well because it threatened the monarchy the whole future of the crown was put at risk by a rumor that somebody might be one of the princes in the tower um come back to claim his right and of course i mentioned all these yorkist nobles that were still quite bitter. They felt they'd been cheated at the Battle of Bosworth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my wife and I went to the reenactment last year, which is on um, shortly now. It's, it's the, almost the anniversary of it. And uh, at, at the reenactment, there's a couple of thousand people and, and they say over the microphone, let's hear a cheer for the, the Tudors. And there's only my wife cheered. <laughs> and um, then, when they said, let's hear a cheer for York, the place erupted. Mm. So even to this day, I think the, um, there's a lot of Yorkist legacy around. Mm -hmm. And Henry didn't have a clue how to deal with these pretenders yeah. because there are no, um, nobody's got any experience in that really, um, short of bumping them off as quickly as you could. And um, he kind of fudged it because the evidence is that um, he said he put a Perkin Warbeck under house arrest in his own house. Well, that's one way of doing it, isn't it? But it's very benevolent for somebody that's been a pretender to your crown. And um, I think it does give an insight into a side of Henry's character where he would go to extreme lengths rather than have somebody um, dealt with uh, unless he had no choice and you know there are examples where he's had people executed but almost in every case you can see whose hand was behind it and invariably he was still looking for some kind of um, understanding where they could be sent into exile or whatever um, rather than have their head cut off. Mm. Quite a good quite a good man it seems like well Good for that time period. You said a hippie. It seems like I, I can get that that view of him as a hippie. Um, so that's great. So the, I I guess that's probably probably good to get us started. And people can obviously read your books to get more and to get the full picture. And you've got the sequel coming up. Um, so that leads right into. Would you like to say a little bit about your work and where people can find out more and get your books and everything? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, um, I'm pleased to say I've got a, a, a good, strong Twitter following. So um, I'm most active on Twitter 
uh, where you can just um, type in Tony Riches and find me there at Tony Riches. Um, I've got a smaller Facebook presence, so I've got a Facebook author page, and I do try and keep that up to date and everything like that. And I've got a website which is tonyriches.com, which has got the Tudor trilogy on it, including um, the links and the videos, and um, also details of my other books. And I just like to um, really wrap this up by thanking you for inviting me to talk and to say a bit about it all. And just to mention, you did say about Henry's sister, uh, Mary Tudor, who's often mistaken uh, with Mary Tudor, his daughter, mm -hmm. which uh, I've got a lifelong campaign now to make sure that doesn't happen. And of course, she married the King of France when she was a teenager, and he was 52 and on his last legs. So that's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, Sadly, they'd only just started to get to know each other when he mysteriously died and she was <laughs> able to find the person she'd always wanted to, yeah. Charles Brandon. So that's what I'm writing now. I'm about halfway through it and I hope to have it. Uh, it's going to be edited, edited before Christmas. So, so it'll be early in the new year, I hope. And it kind of acts as a sequel because I became fascinated with the character of Mary towards the end of um, Henry's Tudor's life and I thought she deserved um, people to understand her better what it might have been like to live her life. Oh wow that's great that's, that's great can you tell me uh, what painting is that behind you because I think people are going to wonder. That's, yeah that is um, the Battle of Bosworth and it's um, it's it's quite a, a detailed painting uh, but a little bit fanciful, I think, uh, because actually um, Henry stayed well out of danger, surrounded by um, some of his most trusted men, although I think there is evidence that Jasper Tudor might have got a bit more involved. And um, like a lot of battles, um, it was the, the undecided people that made the difference. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, it's well documented um, that the balance of, of the battle swung in Henry's favour and Richard III uh, was taken quite by surprise at the disloyalty uh, that people that he trusted um, showed to him when it really counted. Yeah. So I thought it's, a, it's a, good, a good picture to have in the background. That's great. That's great. Great. Well Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.